Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted March 10, 2017, we talk about the future of U.S.-Russia relations in the Trump era with the new school Russian expert and World Policy Fellow Nina Khrushcheva, great-granddaughter of the late Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line Interrupted, with the unique perspective provided by all female writers and editors. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. Yeah, winners and losers for you. Donald Trump tweeting over the weekend. Journalists, lots to write about, but half of the country thinks they're illegitimate. Loser. White House staff, losing. They're on the back end of everything Trump does. Jared and Ivanka, loser. On Saturdays when they're not involved, Trump goes crazy. FBI Director Comey, loser. He literally has an impossible job. And the intelligence community, loser. They're getting dragged back into politics whether or not they want to. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right. major fight, that's a good thing. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent? It was an unprecedented profession of national guilt by an American president. And Donald Trump's February interview with Fox News anchor Bill O'Reilly seemed the most dramatic demonstration yet of how far Trump would go to foster friendly relations with Vladimir Putin. It also came under the cloud of related investigations into alleged Russian hacking to tilt last year's election to Trump, into alleged connections between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence, and into admitted potentially illegal pre-inaugural discussion of Obama sanctions on Russia with its ambassador to Washington that led Trump to fire the controversial general he'd named his first national security advisor. As president, Trump did okay a minor easing of the Obama sanctions to permit sales of U.S. encryption technology, of all things. For all that, however, the first days and weeks of the Trump presidency were marked mostly by major Trump appointee strong stands against Russian adventurism and in support of NATO, the larger European alliance, embattled Ukraine, fearful Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Where White House Kremlin relations go from here is the subject of a WPJ blog talking policy feature with new school Russian expert and world policy fellow Nina Khrushcheva, great-granddaughter of the late Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. And we revisited that conversation recently for this podcast. Professor Khrushcheva, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. With clearly mixed messages coming from President Trump, Vice President Pence, and Defense Secretary Mattis, what are the key issues you see now between the U.S. and Russia? Well, everything. I mean, the minute the word Russia or Putin comes up in a conversation, I mean, it seems that all hell breaks loose and, you know, America is really charging into the Cold War mode like it has not even been since 1960s, I believe. Um, uh, having said that, I think there are questions that are obviously on the table. 
One is the question of Ukraine and Crimea and the easing of sanctions or not easing of sanctions. And we do hear uh, somewhat conflicting messages, although they do seem to be getting on the same page, both President Trump and uh, his advisors, is that um, Russia would be held responsible for the Crimea annexation, which is somewhat different from uh, Trump's original stance that, you know, who cares and, you know, Russians are not even in Ukraine at all. So this is something that uh, has been discussed. Um, as for the easing of sanctions, in fact, you mentioned that uh, Trump okayed a minor easing. Actually, as we now know, that was a very technical procedure, and uh, the reason it is being discussed only because Russia is, as, as I said, on the forefront of every conversation about American foreign policy. Uh, so that's really not necessarily easing of the sanctions, but it's just the attention to the complexity of how the sanctions, if they are to be eased, uh, are going to play forward. Then there is a matter of Syria, as we know. Uh, Trump kept saying uh, that uh, if Putin is going to be involved in Syrian ISIS, so let him do that. And yet there is other others who say that, uh, you know, Putin's presence in Syria is not really um, that useful to uh, fight ISIS because Putin has his own agenda uh, and whatnot. So, uh, so basically, I think what we are facing is that uh, the White House and his advisors still do not have a Russian policy. They want better relationship with Russia, but at the same time, they really, um, if if President Trump does want it. Um, as he says he wants it, he really fights against or wants it against 90% of uh, the views of the American establishment and generally American culture, political culture, and popular culture, because Russia, as it stands today, is the United States adversary, if not a full-blown enemy. Uh, and this is something that I believe is culturally acceptable, so it would be very difficult for President Trump to foster a good relationship with the Russians. Given the conflict between Trump's isolationist rhetoric uh, so often, uh, but the pledges of support for NATO and Europe generally by Pence and, and Mattis, what are the first signs you will look for about the actual direction of U.S. policy where Russia is concerned? As I said, I mean, I, I find this, this actual sign very difficult to, to decipher because it does seem that both Pence and Mattis really stand with the sort of general Russian policy that is, trust but verify or don't trust and verify anyway. Uh, so this is where they stand, and yet it comes in slight conflict, although less and less so with President Trump's announcements that he would like to have a good relationship with Putin, although he's not sure they would, they would get along. So I think they're still really figuring out how to um, have some relationship with Russia, but really not uh, having Russia as a partner, because I think by, by now – political culture is such that it would be very difficult. I mean, I don't know how long it can even take for Trump to convince the 90% of American population that, in fact, America can deal with Russia. It's not an enemy because the, the rhetoric of Russia is an enemy has been ratcheting up since 2012, 2013, uh, and uh, dialing it back in, I don't know, half a year, less than half a year, would be very, very difficult for President Trump. So I personally do not expect... Um, good solutions there in, in any way, even if Trump admires Putin for being a strong leader and wants him to be and wants, him, uh, wants 
himself to be such a strong leader. I just don't see how it's going to be happening in practical terms. Another thing that has been on American minds relatedly is, is the actual relationship between Trump and Putin and all the friendly words they've had for one another. Uh, you were surprised it took them so long to talk seriously after Putin's first post-election congratulations call. What do you think this relationship really is? Well, I think that, I mean, it was surprising that it took them so long. On the other hand, uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's understandable that it did because Trump was so... Uh, bromancing Putin during the campaign and even after the elections that it would really look, it would have very bad optics for Trump if he would pick Putin as the first topic of the conversation. And, I, and in fact, the Russians were um, kind of very careful in saying, well, we expect all these great changes happen immediately uh, and whatnot. Um, I know there is, I mean, there was a New York Times uh, piece, whatever, last week, week, two weeks ago, uh, about the uh, connections between the Trump campaign and uh, and the Russians, and then it was apparently Reince Priebus, the um, uh, chief of staff, the White House chief of staff, asked the FBI, FBI to uh, confront the story and say it's not true. So it's all very quite unclear what this relationship is on a uh, on a professional level of. Uh, the bureaucrats, uh, from what I know, Putin and Trump really do not have a relationship. And he doesn't, from once again, from what I know, and, and who knows exactly, they're really, I mean, I know Trump really was eager to, ha- uh, was eager to have some business connections, much greater business connections that he might have with Russia, but it really didn't pan out because from what I know, once again, Putin didn't really take uh, take his uh, this businessman seriously enough, uh, but Trump wants those, and this is probably one of the reasons that um, that he's rather nice to Putin. And you know, my other suspicion is that you know, if allegedly the leaks did happen with the DNC, they probably did happen as allegedly, but as likely happened with their RNC, and uh, uh, Trump probably may be afraid of what Putin might have on him, and Putin might have on him uh, quite a dossier. So, uh, so I think this is a relationship that is still uh, to play out, and uh, once again I think there is a bit of disparity between what Trump wants this relationship to be, to be and what Trump can have this relationship to be. In some ways, I'm very reminded in this of relationship between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev and in the late 1980s, is that uh, Reagan, although he wanted to um, have Gorbachev as a partner in the Soviet Union, he was very mindful and very careful of how to go about it because, you know, America was an absolute uh, enemy of the USSR at the time, and, and Reagan had to be very careful in addressing how uh, the relationship would play out. Some found it suspicious that no recording or transcript of the later call between uh, Putin and Trump uh, was made public. Were you surprised by that or by the official reports of what was and was what was not said? Yes and no. I think once again, Russia being such a lightning rod at all times, uh, it would have been so easy and normal to record that phone call. Although, on the other hand, I imagine that uh, some of those phone calls when, when presidents talk to foreign leaders are not being recorded. And once again, just because it's Russia, it has received so much attention. Um, it is interesting that although originally it was announced that it would be just a Trump-Putin call, then there are other 
uh, other officials got um, uh, got involved in it, and so there was some trust, some verification was uh, was happening. I do think from what was reported was kind of dramatic for me is because it did show um, not that I expect Donald Trump to be particularly knowledgeable in in foreign affairs or any other affairs because a lot of it, obviously, as we know. For him, you know, being in the White House as a, as, a, as a business deal that he has arranged to promote his career, good for him. Uh, but, you know, his complete misunderstanding of what nuclear situation in the world is, what, you know, what kind of uh, obligations the nuclear powers have and whatnot. Uh, and that really, really um, I find frightening because uh, even if Trump wants to be Putin and thinks Putin is a great guy because he's a strong leader, Putin actually is very savvy, knows exactly what he's doing and saying. And the fact that Trump often presents himself as such a novice in those matters uh, really open America up to potential manipulation from the Russian government or many other governments around the world. In that regard, what was your reaction to the back-channel peace proposal for Ukraine that came through Trump's personal lawyer and a former business associate, though the lawyer later denied actually passing it on to uh, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn uh, just before he was forced out. We do know that back-channel back proposals of all sorts happen with all countries. And, and, you know, once again, the reason we're talking about it is because it's Russia, and anything Russia does is always... Um, is always up for scrutiny uh, and whatnot. I mean, you know, back-channel peace proposal is fine. I'm happy if there is any peace proposal that actually can work in Ukraine would be fine. Uh, it's just because um, I don't believe that neither the Russians nor, uh, nor the Americans would have Ukrainian interests in mind. That really becomes a very dangerous thing because Ukraine is really not some, um, you know, tiny unknown country, not the tiny unknown country should be, uh, should be handled without, uh, w- without their, um, uh, their approval. And that's what I think is, is somewhat dangerous, and probably that's why it didn't pan out. Or we don't know actually where, where it has gone, and maybe it will get revived and, and, and reviewed again, is that uh, Ukraine, if Ukraine is not part of that conversation, really becomes a pawn uh, between the two um, kind of major powers or stronger powers than, than Ukraine is. And that also creates rather dangerous precedents for further dealing with foreign affairs in, with any countries in any country. And what's your personal bet on whether investigations in Washington will prove that there was some collusion, uh, coordination, or at least communications uh, between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence or go-betweens during the, during the, the election campaign? I imagine that they're not far-fetched. I don't know how criminal they are, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, people, countries talk to countries all the time and campaigns talk to campaigns all the time. Um, I think, uh, and also because the oldest people who were around Trump were one way or another had relationship uh, with, uh, with Russia or, or those connected to Russia. Paul Manafort, his former campaign manager, had relations with the pro-Russian president of Ukraine, Michael Flynn, as we now know, had very uh, important relationship with the Russians, although I'm not sure that that relationship was kind of an intellectual level. He probably just got paid by Russia today, and therefore he attended those things. I do know that, uh, you know, in previous administrations, um, other 
American, um, other American functionaries or military people actually got involved with Russia this way. I know Donald Rumsfeld attended attended conferences in uh, in Russia and got money for that. So it's not really entirely that unusual. It's just because Trump's praise for Putin is so unusual that that really becomes. Uh, becomes a matter of focus of, uh, of American foreign policy. So I imagine Rex Tillerson, as we know, even got a medal from the Russians for his service to, to the nation. So in, that suggests to me that they must be or might, might have been some conversations because these people did have um, channels that, um, that, you know, regular American officials who have no relations with Russia uh, would have. I mean, they were Russia experts, so to speak. So, but once again, the question is, um, because it, I'm sure it happens el- elsewhere in other instances, is it illegal or is it just because uh, the concentration in Russia was so big and every word is being uh, so dissected that, uh, that immediately any reach out to, to the Russians in any form uh, suddenly become criminalized in in uh, in sort of American public consciousness. Behind the official Kremlin denials, what's the attitude in Moscow about the hacking of the U.S. presidential election? Also know about tough talk from Pence and Mattis and the Obama sanctions that remain in place. You know, the Russians c- c- clearly deny uh, the hacking, and they would never admit the hacking. And the hacking really could never be proven. Because, and, you know, if we read the reports, uh, the report that was put out proving it, actually, that report is, I would say, 60% conjecture um, and kind of speculation as to what means what, why. Uh, but the Russians, the way Putin, I mean, Putin said it better than anybody. I mean, let's do more hacking because that's what, uh, or let, let's, let, he didn't say let's do more hacking. Uh, let's, uh, great that information got released because it does show um, how hypocritical American democracy is. And so that's what their line is. Whoever did this really did the service to the nation because the nation should really look itself in the mirror and, you know, reconsider its, its actions, uh, actions of um, how to handle other countries and kind of get humbled and, and whatnot. Of course, it didn't happen, but that's the Russian stance is that when America got humbled and instead of, uh, and instead of actually... Um, kind of look at itself and, and understand its imperfections, what do they do? They do a typical American thing. They just blame us. So that's the reaction of the Russians generally. And what about the reaction to the fact that uh, for all Trump's rhetoric, uh, the, the Obama sanctions are still uh, almost entirely in place? Well, that's the thing. I mean, and, and the Russians were saying, I mean, they were, they, they were hopes that Trump would take it down. And, and uh, I do believe that, uh, the later sex sanctions, the end of December sanctions, um, you know, Putin's response to them was rather uh, was was rather um, kind of mute and and um, uh, and and very level-headed is because there were expectations that the minute Trump comes in, uh, he would uh, start procedures of figuring out how to take how to take them down. But once again, as I said at the beginning, is that very difficult. I mean, whatever he wants to do really flies in the face of uh, uh, 90% of opposition to Russia in American you know, political 
establishment and and uh, sort of cultural perception of Russia and and uh, he's I'm sure he's he's faced with this reality which would absolutely I mean if anybody knows anything about foreign policy already knew that it would happen in I don't know in the summer um, and so the uh, the um, his administration the masses and Tillerson. Uh, and uh, and pants they do play this kind of counterbalance to uh, Trump overtures, and in some ways, actually, I think it does work for the administration because it is possible that while we're looking at masses and say, "Well, these people are reasonable uh, in relations to Russia," uh, Trump, who is as he keeps saying, he's the big dog, he's the most important one, and he makes all the decisions, actually would work to take down sanctions and uh, kind of make a deal with personally Vladimir Putin and then say, well, look, that's the relationship that, that matters to us the most. And another thing about the Russians is that since the Russia run by the top dog at all times, that whole vertical of power is all about that. You run from the Kremlin. So they do listen to Mathis, sort of, or, or Pence, but in their view, it's Trump who makes all the decisions. So in Russia, the attitude is to wait and see, but expecting that Trump would fulfill his so-called promises and actually would try to foster the relationship with Russia. I think for Trump would be very difficult to go against American political reality, not the Russian one. If Trump is of a mind to, uh, to achieve some sort of detente, what do you think the shape of that detente might be? I mean, let's put aside easing of sanctions. That's obvious. I mean, can you see uh, changes in uh, military positioning uh, in Ukraine, around Ukraine, in Europe, what, or, or, or something that had to do with Syria or something that had to do with China? What are the areas that you can see some improvements that, that Americans might accept? Well, I mean, I, I'm actually not kind of, I'm not really holding my breath for that detente. I, I think it would be very, very difficult to push through for, for Donald Trump. And, uh, and I think Vladimir Putin is going to wait for some while, but he's not going to wait for a long time. And so Trump can turn as equal American adversary as, you know, Barack Obama was for, for Vladimir Putin just because Trump wouldn't deliver on the so-called promises. I mean, he didn't really promise, but he kind of, the expectation was there. Um, I mean, yes, they can. I mean, China could be a good example because Trump does seem to be somewhat critical of China, although he does change his mind once in a while. So he somewhat critical of China and could be something, um, kind of a proposition that Putin gives up his his close relationship with China for a close relationship with the West. It's entirely possible. I don't know how it's pr- practically achievable because on one hand, you know, Putin may want to go that direction, but he's mistrustful of the West as much more that he's mistrustful of, of, uh, of China. So that could be an interesting balance. There's also a run issue. Uh, once again, Trump is very critical of the um, uh, Iran deal uh, that Barack Obama had uh, last year. So what, giving Putin would be asked to give up his relationship with Iran for uh, closeness to the West. Again, don't know how it is practically achievable uh, because uh, Putin is not going to give up his looming sort of uh, slightly increased influence in, in the Middle East and, uh, and the Persian Gulf. So 
he and he's not trusting the West because he already had this example of NATO expansion, which you cite to the deathbed, is that, you know, the West promised that we're going to be part of the West, there's no opposition, there's no contradiction, and suddenly all these Baltic countries got admitted into, uh, into NATO and Russia was left with nothing. So I think it is a very important question. I'm not sure I, am, I, I, I can predict how it's going to play out because ultimately the Russians would trust non the West more than they would trust the West. So this, this kind of deals uh, would, should be constructed very, 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 very carefully. Uh, Putin wants to be part of the West. Russia wants to be part of the West. But it really doesn't believe that the West will ever take it. And therefore, Russia, in geopolitical terms, in strategic geopolitic, ge- geopolitical terms, feels that it's much better off with those who are ultimately also in opposition to the West. Do you see in this soup of contradictions uh, the beginning of a new world order? Yes, I think that's what I was just describing, is that in some ways um, uh, the West, and Putin calls it hypocritical West, the, the West is not what we used to be. There is no really that much belief that um, the West is you know, better than, than the rest, essentially. It is unique, maybe, but not universal. All these other actors who feel uh, who feel that they are being uh, mistreated by the West or slighted by the West would look at Russia to find a way to um, kind of rise up in their own this new global world order, which of course Russians call the multipolar world order, but ultimately it's about anti-Western world order. Uh, so yes, I think it is. It is. Um, uh, it is a great probability, and that is actually something that terrifies me the most, because um, the American president of the country that uh, is supposed to be the glue and the nucleus of that Western world order himself every day debunks it and really makes it so easy for all these other non-Western actors to um, attack it and confront it and reconfigure the system that ultimately, you know, nobody has offered us a better one. Given your unique perspective on the former Soviet Union and on contemporary Russia, what's the best advice uh, to the American people you have now uh, that Trump is president? I don't, know. I don't have an advice. I just think it's, it's the most incomprehensible and despicable thing that happened that we do have the president of the United States that, whose rhetoric is worse than those of the enemies of the United States. So, yes, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked. I, I read literature. I think it's important because I ultimately the lust for entertainment and a soundbite got us here. So try reading books. Read Huxley, Brave New World, because that's where uh, it all began. Um, read George Orwell 1984, read Vladimir Nabokov, Ben Sinister, sort of educate yourself in how to handle, uh, in how to handle autocratic leaders because Trump certainly seems like he's a novice uh, autocrat. Um, you know, go to a museum. I, I really think that people should st- start getting more educated and, and uh, kind of question their leaders uh, much more than, uh, than Americans got used to. So Americans stop being gullible. Don't believe what what uh, the state tells you. And if you choose, if you have a choice between the media and the White House, choose the media.
Uh, but the flip side, uh, you said in your earlier conversation with WPJ, is to uh, not to pay so much attention to Hollywood, to the kind of scenarios we see uh, in the movie Salt with Angel Angelina Jolie, uh, other uh, espionage fiction. It, it is true that the, that the first days and weeks of the Trump administration seem to be weirder and wilder than anything you can see in uh, Madam Secretary or Scandal on television. Absolutely. I mean, and we already have this incredible evidence. I mean, Alec, Alec Baldwin is being, uh, his picture is, is in, uh, uh, in a newspaper in a, I forgot which country it was, uh, it, discussing the um, uh, American-Israeli relationship. It wasn't Trump's picture. I mean, they, you know, the arts are now rise to the, uh, to the level of brilliance, as they, by, by the way, always do in autocratic societies, uh, to the rise to the, uh, to the level of brilliance that others really conflate uh, the arts with uh, this completely improbable, improbable reality. No, I mean, I, stop watching movies, read a book. <laughs> Professor Khrushcheva, thank you. Thank you very much. New School Russian expert and world policy fellow Nina Khrushcheva is the great-granddaughter of the late Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. She discussed where White House Kremlin relations go from here in a recent World Policy blog talking policy feature. Since we spoke, Washington investigations ramped up into alleged Russia-Trump campaign connections, but Attorney General Jeff Sessions previously a Republican senator and top Trump surrogate, had to recuse himself from the matter after news that, during Senate confirmation hearings, he failed to mention his own meetings with Russia's U.S. ambassador. That was followed by a CNN report that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, also met with the ambassador, and an ABC News report that Donald Trump Jr., during the campaign, attended a Paris dinner arranged by a group that promotes Kremlin foreign policy and nominated Putin for the Nobel Peace Prize. Trump himself confirmed that his team at the GOP convention got the party platform stripped of support for lethal arms to help Ukraine fight pro-Russia separatists. In Moscow, even as some officials decried what they called a witch hunt over reported Russia-Trump contacts, state-backed media did not hesitate to headline, quote, Sessions scandal and constitutional crisis, nor to question Trump's real will or power to improve relations. Quote, Trump's entourage is making every effort to ensure that the previous administration's anti-Russian policy is continued, said a March 4 Sputnik article by a member of the Duma's Committee on International Affairs. And Moscow deployed what a top U.S. general this week called a prohibited ground-based cruise missile that threatens, quote, a risk to most of our facilities in Europe and to NATO. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, cover line Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female authors and experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on a Saudi-Egyptian alliance literally going on the rocks, and on the bad manners and serious bias that can infect the algorithms behind artificial intelligence. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the future of U.S.-China relations with expert Ann Lee author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerome Beck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern. Mm-hmm.